A scripture reading today comes from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Christ community, and Merry Christmas. It's so good to be with you this morning, and uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas weekend. And I want to especially welcome the kids in the room with us today. I mean, you guys, you guys have been anticipating this weekend for a long time, right? You've been counting down your Advent calendars, uh, for the, and this is the weekend you've been waiting for, right? Worship Together Sunday, when you get to be with your parents in church upstairs. So I hope you guys are excited. And if you're not excited to be here, just remember it's only 364 days until Christmas. So it's never too early to start counting down. And I have a, question, a few questions for the kids in the room today. I'm looking mostly at this side of the room because I think that's where most of you are. Uh, it's, a, it's a Christmas quiz, okay? You guys are off school right now, but you've got to keep your minds sharp. So you guys get to participate in the sermon today, okay? So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you some questions. I just want you guys to shout out the answer, all right? Kids, there's, there's not that many of you, so you're going to have to be kind of loud. I'm, I'm way up here. Can you guys do that for me? Okay, that wasn't, that was, that's better. Thank you. All right, we're good. All right, so, and kids watching on live stream, you guys, you can go ahead and uh, you can shout out answers as well. Here we go. First question. What city was Jesus born in? Bethlehem. All right, great, awesome. Bethlehem, way to go. Second question. When Jesus was born, where did his, where did his parents lay him down? In a manger. In a manger. All right, good job. Okay, two for two. You guys know your Bible stories. Okay, question three. Who was governor of Syria during the census that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? This is part of the Christmas story. Come on, guys. Okay, that was too hard. It's Quirinius, okay? Quirinius, Governor Quirinius. It's Luke 2, 2. It's in there. All right. Okay, we'll go a little easier. All right. So who was told about Jesus' birth by angels while they were watching uh, their sheep in their fields at night? The shepherds. The shepherds. Okay, very good. And last question, who brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus? He's the wise man, right? The Magi. Awesome job, you guys. Very good. You guys know your stuff. You've been listening. I'm really proud of you. And I have a question for the grown-ups in the room. And this, this will be rhetorical because I know you don't want to shout out your answers to me. <laughs> when Jesus was born, where were Israel's leaders? Why didn't God invite them to the party? Jerusalem, which was, the, which was the religious and political center of Israel, was only a few miles away from Bethlehem. But the religious leaders didn't hear any angelic announcements. King Herod, he didn't see the star over Bethlehem. And nobody invited Governor Quirinius. The Son of God has been born, and the, the only people invited are Joseph and Mary, who are a peasant couple from a small village on the outskirts of nowhere, 
a handful of blue-collar shepherds working the night shift, and some stargazing foreigners. The Bible doesn't tell us why more prominent people weren't invited, um, but we can speculate a little bit. And, I, and I, we know that the Jewish people at that time were experiencing something of a leadership crisis. Corruption was rampant, scandals plagued the political and religious establishment. People were disenchanted, and, and some even plotted revolution. There was a leadership crisis. And when I look around our world today, and I, we see scandal after scandal plaguing politics and corporate America, and yes, even churches and other religious institutions, it makes me think that maybe we have a taste of what the Jewish people were experiencing in the first century. In the ancient world, one of the most common images for leadership was that of a shepherd. As far back as King Hammurabi, hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, in Babylon, ancient rulers were connected with the images of shepherd. Uh, with, so the images of, of, of shepherd and king were, were connected. We see this in the iconography of the ancient world as well as uh, in their laws and things like that. And Israel's history was filled with bad shepherds or bad kings. Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 are, are two different passages that denounce Israel's shepherds for their failure to lead the people in the ways of the Lord. The very people charged with leading the nation in the worship of God had led the people to bow down before idols. The people who were supposed to administer righteousness and justice instead committed violence and injustice. A question that hung over that world, as it does in our world today, is this. Is there a good shepherd? Is there someone who will do what is right? Is there a shepherd who will rescue and protect and provide for his sheep, and not just do what's best for himself? The answer given in the Bible is, is yes, there is a good shepherd. And today we'll be reading from Psalm 23, which is one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible, and it describes God as our good shepherd. We're in the last week of our series called, He Shall Be Called. In this series, we've been exploring the various names of, or titles of God that connect to the Christmas story. So far, we've looked at God Most High, Lord of hosts, the God who sees, and Emmanuel. And our, our final name today is Shepherd. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 23. And we're going to dive into this psalm and get, get into the details of it. But first, I want to make some observations about it, kind of at a high level. Psalms are ancient Hebrew poems. Uh, most of them are prayers. And this particular psalm is a masterful work of art. If you're only here this morning because, uh, because you, you're obligated, you know, maybe you're visiting family in town and they dragged you here, um, or you're just here because it's Christmas, if that's you this morning, then uh, first just hear me say that I'm really glad you're here. But second, if you're skeptical about Christianity, I hope to at least convince you that this is a brilliant poem written by an expert poet. So if you've got your Bible open to Psalm 23, let, let's notice a few things about it. First, uh, one thing that's different about biblical poetry and the kind of writing that you and I are used to is that in biblical poetry, and, and often even in biblical stories, the main idea is often actually in the middle. So we're, we're used to it being at the beginning, and then you expound on it, or maybe you build to it at the end. But biblical poems and stories often as well are built like a sandwich, okay? and the main idea is right there in the center. And in Psalm 23, the idea at the center is, I fear no evil for you are with me. In fact, if you count the Hebrew words in Psalm 23, and I'm, I'm kind of a Bible nerd and I did that, uh, the phrase, you are with me, is the exact center of the psalm. 
There are 26 Hebrew words before you are with me and 26 Hebrew words after. God with me or God with us. It sounds familiar, right? It's the central message of Christmas. We talked about the name Emmanuel last week, which means God with us. Psalm 23 is also about the God who is with us. And in Psalm 23, God is specifically with us where? As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I want you to notice that there's movement language throughout this whole psalm, especially the beginning and the end. So in the beginning, in verse 2, God leads me. And in verse 6, at the end, goodness and mercy follow me. In the middle, the movement is through a dark valley. So in this psalm, we're, we're on a journey. And God goes before, goodness and mercy follow behind, and God is with us in the middle. And notice where the movement is taking us. It starts in the, in the wilderness where sheep have to go to graze and it ends in a home. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The movement in the psalm is, is toward God's house. It represents an, incre- an increasing level of intimacy from, from the wilderness, which in the Bible is often where one is far from God, to joining God at his dining room table. And we see the movement toward greater intimacy also in the way that the pronouns change from the first half to the second half of the psalm. In verses 1 through 3, notice, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. But notice what happens at the end of verse 4. David switches to addressing God directly. You are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a table You anoint my head with oil. David has stopped telling us what God does, and he just starts addressing God himself. It's not just that he is with me, but you, God, are with me. The intimacy has been kicked up a notch from he to you and from the wilderness to the dining room table. The metaphor for God actually changes in verse 4. Sorry, in verse 5. Did you notice that? God is not just our shepherd in the wilderness, but he's our gracious host in his home as well. And we'll focus on the shepherd metaphor the rest of the way, but the the metaphor of God as our dinner host is actually really prominent throughout Scripture as well. I hope one day to be able to talk about that as well. Let's dive into the shepherd imagery some more, and then we'll draw some lessons for our lives. So let's start in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And many many of us are used to hearing this psalm at funerals, and that makes sense because it's a beautiful passage for memorial service. But as comforting as this psalm is in in death, it's written for our daily lives. And unfortunately, as Dallas Willard says, the Lord is my shepherd is written on far more tombstones than lives. God wants to shepherd you. Not just when you die, but today, tomorrow, when you go home, when you go to work, when you go to class or back to campus after winter break. God wants to be your shepherd in all of those places So we should be writing, the Lord is my shepherd on our lives and not just on our tombstones. And there's one major implication when I say that the Lord is my shepherd. If God is my shepherd, then what does that make me? It it makes me a sheep. And truthfully, I don't really want to be a sheep. I mean, sheep are cute and all, but they're not exactly majestic creatures. They have no natural defenses and they're not terribly intelligent. There aren't a lot of competitions that sheep are going to win. So if you want to know what being a sheep is like, check out, check out this video.
Is there, is there any better metaphor for what it means to be human? <laughs> so, but there, there's one really important thing that sheep can do. Sheep can recognize the voice of their shepherd. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey spent most of his life living in the Middle East, and he wrote a, a brilliant book called The Good Shepherd, A Thousand-Year Journey from Psalm 23 to the New Testament. And in this book, he describes a common scene in, in Middle Eastern villages. He, he describes it like this. He says, in the, in, in the morning, um, all the shepherds in the village, they, they'll release their sheep from their pens at around the same time, and the sheep will, will run out into the street together as they held, head toward the wilderness to graze. So the result is that all these flocks of sheep, they become mixed as they run through town. And when they get to the edge of the town, each shepherd has a unique call, usually with their voice, but sometimes an instrument, that they'll use. And, and his own sheep will peel off from the intermingled flock to follow him. The sheep recognize their shepherd's voice and they sort themselves out. And they follow their own shepherd out into the wilderness to graze. And that's what God wants from us. He doesn't ask us to defend ourselves or to be particularly clever. He just wants us to learn to recognize his voice and to follow him. The goal of the Christian life is not to win. It's not to win every argument or to win every culture war. The paradox of the gospel is that winning actually comes by losing. The one who wants to save his life must lose it. So the goal of the Christian life is not to win. It's to learn to recognize the voice of the good shepherd and to follow him. The second half of verse 1 then says, I shall not want. And the rest of the psalm demonstrates that idea that when, when God is our, my shepherd, I lack nothing. And, and here's what Ken Bailey again uh, says about this verse. He says, the psalmist has a very basic set of wants that the shepherd provides for his sheep. The list includes food, drink, tranquility, rescue when lost, freedom from fear of evil and death, a sense of being surrounded by the grace of the Lord in a permanent dwelling place in the house of God. Here's what's not on the list. An ever-rising mountain of material possessions is not on the list. There is no hint of any need for power or control. An externally generated set of compulsive desires and the need to be constantly entertained are also absent. The sheep knows that only with the shepherd's help can they secure the above list of basic wants. And in verse 2 then, the psalm shows us that David provides for those wants. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And here we see the shepherd providing for his sheep. A sheep won't lay down until it's eaten and it's full. And a sheep also won't drink from, from moving water. So this is a picture of a satisfied sheep. It's full, it's had, it's had its fill. And I find it really interesting that the person who penned this picture of tranquility was David. David, whose life was filled with turbulence. He's a man who spent much of his life on the run, or fighting in battles, and, and at times living with the disastrous consequences of his own sin. David, in the midst of all of that, is satisfied, at peace, resting in green pastures and beside still waters. How is that possible? Because he knows that his good shepherd is with him. Verse 3 then gives us a couple of related images. First, he restores my soul. And Ken Bailey, again, whose book I mentioned a moment ago, he argues that this could be better translated, more literally translated, he brings me back. So the verse is not just about restoration, but also about rescue. Sheep, like humans, can be absent-minded. 
They get lost easily. So a shepherd has to count his sheep regularly, and when he finds that one is missing, he sets off to find it. He restores the sheep by finding it and bringing it back to the flock. Does it sound familiar? Jesus, maybe even reflecting on this psalm, reminds us that God is the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes to find the one. The second half of the verse continues that idea. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Some translations say he leads me in right paths, and you'll see that also if you have the ESV down in the footnote. So the literal image here is that the good shepherd, he leads you on the correct path, which is the one that gets you where you need to go. Now, I I really enjoy hiking in the wilderness. I've been on many backpacking trips where you can be miles away from the nearest road. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it can be really scary if you lose the trail or if you're not sure that you're on the right trail. It's dangerous to get lost in the wilderness. And years ago, when when Emily and I were backpacking with some friends in Great Smoky Mountain National Park in Tennessee, we were hanging around our campsite in the morning and we we were drying out our gear because it had rained the night before and we were kind of eating breakfast and drying everything out. And this family came stumbling down, uh, down the trail into our campsite. And none of them were dressed appropriately for backcountry hiking. And and there were three generations, kids, parents, and grandparents, and they looked completely exhausted. They they were sweaty and dehydrated and and worn out. And they saw us drying our gear and eating breakfast, and as they approached, they asked, how much further is it to the parking lot? Uh, it, It turned out that these people had parked their car in a trailhead parking lot three miles back and made their way down the trail, assuming that it would circle back to where they started. They had wandered into the backcountry without a map and without proper gear and not having any idea where the trail was going. They were lost. So I pulled out my map to show one of them where they were, and he yelled over his shoulder, Look, honey, they have a map! Uh, And so I, I delivered the bad news that they were nowhere near their car. But I also showed them that there was another trail that led back to the road, and that hike was considerably uh, shorter than the one they had come in on. They just had to send someone back the long way, um, someone, you know, I think it was one of the adults and a teenager, back to get the car, while everybody else could hike out the shorter distance to be picked up. When we're in the wilderness, we need somebody who knows the way we should go. The wilderness is dangerous and disorienting, and the Good Shepherd knows the right path to take, and it's the path that will take us home. But the right path isn't always the easy path. Sometimes the path is downright scary and dangerous. Look where the path goes in the very next verse. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So evidently, even if we're following the good shepherd, we'll still end up in dark valleys at times. And this this is good news. It's good news because it means that if you're in a dark valley right now, or if you've been in a dark valley, or if you'll be there tomorrow or the next day, you aren't necessarily on the wrong path. There's no promise here that the Christian life is an easy life, only that when life gets hard, God is with us. The image of going through the valley of the shadow of death is is of a shepherd leading his sheep through these these deep wadis in Israel. And a a wadi, I think we have a picture of one, it's a a riverbed that's dry during uh, during summertime. This particular one is in Israel and has a a little monastery on the side. But there's these deep valleys that got washed out by rivers, and they're dry in the summertime. And in summertime happens to be when when, uh, the sheep have to go the farthest to graze. 
because the sheep, the, the, the grass around the villages has been eaten up. They need to go further away to get it. And so sometimes the flock needs to travel through one of these wadis to get to the place to graze on the other side. And there are all kinds of dangers in these valleys. Rocks can fall from overhead. In some places, the path becomes only a few feet wide with a sheer drop on the other side. Predators can lurk around any corner. A heavy rain uphill can bring a wall of water crashing down on you. And there's always the danger of bandits, like the ones that attacked the man on the Jericho Road in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And why would a shepherd lead his flock through such a place? Because on the other side is where grass is still growing and the flocks can graze. The shepherd knows that the only way there is through the valley. And the preposition is important. The shepherd doesn't lead me into the valley of the shadow of death. He leads me through it. Sometimes the valley seems interminably long, though, doesn't it? We can be comforted by remembering that the valley isn't the final destination. And even more comforting is that the shepherd is with me. He doesn't send me through the valley and say, hey, hope you make it. See you on the other side. He knows the way because he's been there before and he's leading me on it. This is where we can jump ahead then to the very last verse in the psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Have you ever been walking somewhere and sensed that you were being followed? Being followed isn't usually a comforting feeling, especially when you're somewhere dangerous and especially when you're alone. It's rare for someone to say, oh, thank goodness, we're being followed. But what if it was God's own goodness and mercy that was following you? That's the image in the psalm, that even in the narrowest and darkest and scariest valley, that God is both ahead of me and behind me. The good shepherd leads me and his goodness and mercy follow me. Therefore, I am not afraid. So church, as we get ready to launch into a new year with all of the challenges that it's likely to bring, I want to remind you of something. God wants to be your shepherd. Did you know that? Do you know who's shepherding you right now? Someone is. Someone is influencing you. And they probably want something from you. They, they want your money or your likes or your follow or your vote. Or maybe they want your influence on their side. But only God wants to shepherd you. To rescue you from that six-inch wide trench when you find yourself there yet again. To provide you with rest and restoration and to be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. And ultimately to have you at his dinner table. God wants us to admit that we're sheep. And it's not fun admitting that I'm like that sheep in the video we saw. It's quite humbling. But it's also liberating. Liberating to be able to say, I can't do this on my own. I need a shepherd who knows the way out of this treacherous wilderness and who will lead me on it. There's a new book that came out recently called The Flourishing Pastor. Uh, The author's name is Tom uh, something. I can't think of it right now. It'll come to me. But Tom, Tom says that leaders need this psalm as much as anyone else. Leaders need to first recognize that they're being led by someone else. So if you're, if you're a leader in the church or in your workplace, in a student group on campus, in your family or as a coach or whatever, wherever, I think Tom would want to remind you that, that even and especially as a leader, your first responsibility is to be a follower of the Good Shepherd. And being a follower of the Good Shepherd will actually make you the best kind of leader. The second takeaway is this. We need to learn to recognize the voice of the good shepherd. Remember that sheep don't have a lot going for them, but one thing that they can do is recognize the voice of of their shepherd. 
In John chapter 10, Jesus makes a startling claim. He, he says, I came that they, my sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. He puts himself in, in the place of God in Psalm 23. Jesus is the one who makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus is the one who leads me beside still waters. Jesus is the one who restores my soul. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he has my best interest at heart. And then Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There are a lot of voices competing for our attention, calling us to follow them. Thanks to modern technology, we probably hear more voices today than at any other time in history. In the midst of that cacophony, can, can you identify the voice of the good shepherd? Whose voice are you listening to? Whose advice are you taking without thinking critically about it? And does that person have your best interest in mind? Do you hear a voice that loves you but corrects you? A voice that wants what is best for you but won't let you stay where you are? A voice that wants something for you and not just something from you? Let's close by reminding ourselves what Jesus says the good shepherd does. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on to say that when the wolf comes to attack the flock, the good shepherd doesn't run away. But he also says the good shepherd doesn't fight off the wolf. The good shepherd gives himself up to it. He lays down his own life in place of the sheep. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. But the empty tomb tells us that Jesus' story didn't end on the cross and that death didn't have the final word. Jesus is equipped to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death because he's already been through it himself. And he's come out on the other side. John's gospel describes Jesus not only as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but also as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that cool? Jesus is both shepherd and lamb. So you're putting away your nativity scene this week. Look closely at the shepherds and the sheep and remind yourself that this is why Jesus came, to be our shepherd, to lead us and to be with us and even to be our lamb. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for being our good shepherd, for making us lie down in green pastures, for leading us beside still waters, for restoring our souls, for leading us on the path that goes, that gets us where we need to go. Thank you for walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death and for having already walked that path yourself. And thank you for inviting us into your house where we who trust in you will dwell forever and ever. And as we contemplate this new year and many of us uh, contemplate new beginnings and new hope and new habits, Help us to learn more and more to recognize your voice and to follow you wherever you lead us. Amen.